Our text this morning is Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. And so today, finally, after all these monstrous creatures and all the destruction of the church's enemies and the great white throne judgment, we finally begin today to taste and see the consummation, the goal of the hope of the church, of the Christian hope. Today's text is sort of like exhaling. There's been a lot to get through to get to this point. And it's some, it should be something of a sigh of relief. I know it was for me to have to, to, to prepare to preach this text. It's a great joy and it's a reminder um, through the torturous path that this is the destiny of the church. And this final section of the book, these last two chapters. Now there will be some warnings even today. But here, John begins to depict in this very vivid way through a whole array of images, just piling them up, biblical images, the glory, the future, solid glory that awaits the overcomers. And so the text, as has been throughout the series, has this great orienting value. This is the great and final issue of the conflict, which rages throughout history, throughout the life of the church. And this is where we're going, and this is why, John is saying, this is why you endure. This is why you endure to the end. And so we're going to look at the text under the two headings that are there on the outline which is on the back inside page of the bulletin, the new creation and throne announcements. So first, the new creation. Under the heading of the new creation, we'll address four things. They're there as A through D in the outline. The first one is the new heavens and the new earth. In verse 1, John sees a new heavens and a new earth. New here probably, probably does not mean from scratch absolutely new. Although there are texts that could be read that way. But 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, for example, that the new creation's already begun. If anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. The new creation begins in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He lives in the new created order, in the eschaton, and believers participate in that somehow through our union in the risen Christ. Jesus' resurrection is the inauguration of a new cosmos. And you taste that already, just a little bit, just a down payment, just a foretaste in your union with him. And what's in view in this text is the consummation or the completion of that reality. This is the not yet. Right now we have an already. This is now the not yet. This is the unveiling of what you taste, but it's still veiled. So, the new heavens and the new earth should be thought of a lot like the new bodies that we'll receive at the resurrection. 
Right? Those bodies will be like our current body. It will be you. But there'll also be bodies that are radically transformed. Right? There, there's going to be some qualitative, fundamental difference. And so when, what John sees here is a kind of cosmic renovation. It's new in quality. It's a radically new order, but it has some continuity to this current order. Right? You're not going to have exactly the same body configured exactly the same way as your body is now in the new heavens and new earth. Nevertheless, there's enough continuity that we can say, yes, that's Bill and that's Joe and that's Sally. You're going to be transfigured the way Jesus was transfigured in the resurrection. And the cosmos itself will become a transfigured order. So it's important to get this balance of continuity and newness right, or at least be in the neighborhood on it. This is the fulfillment, then, of our Old Testament lesson, the prophecy from Isaiah 65, but many prophecies in the Old Testament, that God would, in his final restoration of Israel, in fact, create a new heavens and a new earth. This is not incidental to the Christian life or to the gospel. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead entails a new transfigured cosmos and, in fact, is the beginning of a new transfigured cosmos. So there's continuity, but it's important to note this. John sees this new reality, the text says, and with it, he says, the first earth had passed away. Right? That's important to see. That means this is not a simple touch-up job. Right? God is not just taking the current order and touching it up. This is a discontinuity text. I saw a new heavens and a new earth. The first one passed away. There's a radical newness in this new heavens and new earth. And finally, at the end of verse 1, John notes that the sea is no more which could mean simply that there's no sea in the new created order. But the sea, as we've seen throughout Scripture, and especially in Revelation, the sea represents evil, chaotic forces and powers. The beast in Revelation arises out of the sea. And so the point here is that the new creation is a place of serenity and peace. There's no evil, there's no threat. Right? In, in the new creation, you are beyond probation, fully secure. So this is the church's ultimate hope that we finally get to see face to face. This is the great value of spending time with the back end of the book of Revelation. This is an embodied hope. Our ultimate hope is not dying and going to heaven. That's an intermediate state. It's kind of shadowy. Scripture doesn't spend much time on it. I mean, dying and going to heaven is a wonderful thing. It's a blessed thing, but it's not the ultimate hope of the church. The ultimate hope of the church is a renewed, transfigured cosmos. A new heavens and a new earth. And I think sometimes we forget that. We just sort of meander along through life in a kind of quasi-linear way, 
Knowing that, yes, perhaps someday it will end and we'll go to be with Jesus. But there's no vibrant, living, pulsating desire for a new transfigured cosmos. We forget who we are and where we're going. Thus the value of the text. So the second thing I want to say here is, uh, in the new creation is, uh, is the new Jerusalem. Also, in some ways, a current reality. Right? The Jerusalem from above is our mother, Paul says. Or Hebrews 12 says the church is already assembled as the heavenly city. So the new heavens and the new earth are principally, first and foremost, the home for the, church, for the bride. Right? She, this bride, is the center of the new cosmos. In fact, in these last chapters, John comes very close, very close to virtually identifying the new heavens and the new earth as the new Jerusalem. Notice that in the text, right? I saw a new heavens and a new earth. And what's the next thing he says? I saw the holy city. Talk about the centrality of the church in cosmic history. Right? When John sees a new heavens and a new earth, what he sees is the new Jerusalem. The bride of Christ. And in contrast to Babel and all of history's Babylonian empires, they attempt to reach up to heaven, to build ladders to heaven. In contrast to that, this city, notice in the text, descends to us. It descends to us. This is an odd um, kind of geography. It's easy to just um, miss this geography. You're in the church. You are already part of this new Jerusalem. You are already assembled, somehow, mysteriously, with the risen Christ in the heavenly Zion. And when this reality comes to its fullness and its completion, that Zion comes down out of heaven to us. It's not like a linear thing. The the, the reality of the transfigured church does does not emerge out of history in a sort of organic, incremental way. Like things get a little better, and they get a little better, and they get a little better, and at the end they're really, really good. That's not the picture in the book of Revelation. The city descends as pure gift. Your future glory comes down from above. Some have called this vertical eschatology. The future does not emerge simply out of history. It comes from the new order in the risen Christ. And you belong to that new order. Your life, the church's life, is not Put, does, is not pushed through history. It turns out we don't go through history this way, just one foot in front of the other. It turns out we're yanked into the future by the risen Christ who already exists in the future. We're pulled into the future. Now, this will mess with your ideas of space and time. But that's what it's intended to do. After all, the central Christian confession is, is that you are baptized into the death of a man who died under the Roman regime 2,000 years ago, and that you've been united to that death, and that you're united with him in his resurrection, that you're both crucified with Christ this minute and raised with Christ this minute, and seated with Christ in the heavenly places this minute, and seated here. 
And that you have a future which is going to descend to you from above. This dislodges a person. These texts have this great dislodging function to people who hear them. Because a person who hears the text realizes, I don't belong to this linear order. that I'm, I'm not fundamentally a part of it. My, my very baptism tells me that a sort of space-time collapse has happened and I'm united to Christ in his death and his resurrection. And that the organization I belong to, the church, that's, this is not the Kiwanis Club. The Kiwanis Club does not descend from heaven at the end of the age as virtually coterminous with the new heavens and the new earth. And thus the book of Hebrews says to us, here we have no lasting city. You might love your city. You might love your town. But it's a vaporizing reality. It's a puff. We seek the city, this city, which is to come. We're in the city and we're seeking it. The city, which the writer tells us in Hebrews, has foundations whose architect and builder is God. We're like Abraham in the promised land looking forward to this city. This is what we're looking for. This is what we're looking for. This is what we're oriented toward. This is what Christianity is about. And John sees her as a bride, adorned, beautifully dressed, the NIV says, for her husband. When he looks, the city is not only a place, it's a people. It's the bride of Christ. She's been given. She's adorned herself as well with white linen. And now, after her warfare, after her tribulation, the church is ready, adorned, exquisitely beautiful for her husband. The city, the bride, descends from God. But she is for the son. She's for the heavenly bridegroom. So all of history then, all of our lives, individually, collectively, corporately through the church, all of history, the whole story of the created order is nuptial history, bridal history, marital history. Jonathan Edwards said, the father created the world to prepare a bride for his son. So the third thing to see here is what I'll call the new intimacy. In, in verse 3, John hears this voice, a loud voice from the throne. There's a throne in the midst of the city. There'll be no temple. There's a throne. And the throne and the voice says, "Now the dwelling of God is with men." So the new Jerusalem is not merely a place or a people. It's chiefly a presence. God dwelling or tabernacling with men. This is what Eden pointed to and what the tabernacle pointed to and what the temple pointed to. This is what has come in Jesus Christ who dwelt or tabernacled among us. And it's the consummation of what we now taste again just a little bit in the church because the church is called in the Bible what? The temple of the Holy Spirit. The dwelling place of God in the Spirit. But currently, 
Currently, we have this taste of God, this communion with God, quite indirectly, quite frailly, in a frail manner, right? I mean, just think of how indirect it is. For one thing, you have to listen to people like me talk to you. So you have words, you have texts, and you have sacraments. This is envisioning a time when those things fade and you see the almighty, ever-living, triune God face to face. So, he will dwell or live among them and they will be his people, the text says. God himself will be with us. We will be his people. This is the summary phrase used throughout the Old Testament of covenant communion, which God seeks with you. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That is the summary of God's yearning toward you, of his desire, of his covenant, of all his ways and works. I will be your God. You will be my child. This picture here, then, is of that bond which we have now. It's real. We should not minimize what we have now, but it will be heightened. It will be total. It will be unbreakable. It will be forged in transfigured glory with you and this God on that day. Again, if not, then what what would the point of everything be? This intimacy is what has been promised to the overcomers throughout the book. Throughout the book, they've been told things like, you will have the name of God placed on you. You will have the name of the city of God placed on you. All the promises to the overcomers are eschatological promises, meaning they're promises that have to do with this consummation. No one's excluded here, as under the Old Testament. All the saints know God in face-to-face communion. Later in Revelation 22, John will say, His servants behold his face. That is the end of all Christian living. What the Christian tradition has called the beatific, the happy or the blessed vision. Think about that. The end of your existence is sight or vision of God. There's a certain passivity in that. It's contemplative. God himself is our vision. Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. Without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. When he appears, we know we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Contemplative vision of God. I I often tell harried people, the time is soon coming when there will be no poor to feed and there will be no tasks to do and there will be no to-do lists. There will be the vision of the triune God. That will be the sum total of the church's existence. His servants will see his face. We get cluttered up. Of course we have to feed the poor. We have to do the things on our to-do list. We have to tend to life. But the great value of Holy Scripture is it reminds us that we are to be cultivating a contemplative, visionary demeanor. 
So the fourth aspect of the new creation is the new security. God here by his own agency, with his own hand. This is a beautiful, tender scene. I won't expound this at length because we did it back in chapter 7. There's almost, this identical language appears back in chapter 7 in Revelation. But there's a tenderness here where God takes his own finger and wipes every tear from, from the eyes of his people. And death shall be no more. Right? This is, by the way, why dying and going to heaven cannot be the church's ultimate hope. Because we're looking for this. We're looking for death to be no more. This is what Isaiah 25 speaks of when it says, The Lord shall wipe away all tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. There'll be no mourning or crying here. Sorrow and sighing, as Isaiah puts it, simply flee away. It's a lovely text. There'll be no pain because the curse is finally removed. And the text says the former things, the first creation, has passed away. What happens here is of monumental, and it's very difficult for us to even conceptualize it, to even dream about it. Evil, notice, evil is not rationalized here. I mentioned this back in chapter 7. God is not going to say to you someday, look, I had a really complicated plan. I'm going to explain it to you. Here's why this had to happen, and that had to happen, and this had to happen. That's not the way the New Testament approaches the consummation of all things. What it does is God comes in and he takes his finger and he obliterates evil. He just destroys the memory of it. And, it said, and the text says the former things are gone. They've passed away. It's not rationalized. It's not explained. It's simply obliterated. And there's a new order which somehow penetrates backwards and heals the past. And that's all we need because we're face-to-face with the triune God. It's very difficult, a text like this, I think, when you might first stumble upon it because it seems so unreal. And the gap between this text and our experience and this world is so grand that the text seems, well, utopian. And it is utopian in a good way. But this is why the texts like this have to be engaged. Right? We, have, we have to kind of remind ourselves repeatedly, C.S. Lewis does this wonderfully in one place, um, that the heavenly reality, the new creation, is the thick, full, concrete, real reality, and this order is the wispy one. Right? This is the evaporating one. There's a great inversion that has to happen here in the Christian consciousness. Do you believe that this order of things is the concrete destiny of all things? It's the real, enduring, permanent thing, the thing that has depth? Or do you think this current world is really, really solid and concrete, blood and bones and iron and steel, and the other world to come is wispy, where people sit around on harps and they just float in the ethereal wonder of it all? Right? A text like this is meant to create an inversion, a dislodging. It's a grand and glorious thing, though. You can't live in this order properly until you've come to grasp its vaporizing, ephemeral character. After that, you can enjoy it. You know, have a cheeseburger, have an apple, enjoy it. Right? So, 
The second point is the throne announcements. And here it's A through C, three things on the outline. The first one is assurance. In verse 5, God himself speaks. Behold, I'm making all things new. We've already talked about that. And John's told to write this down. This is simply God adding his amen to what John has already seen. John says, this is coming. And then the almighty God on the throne says, amen, I assure you, I assure you, this, God's in a sense taking a bow here, this is the future for the beleaguered churches. And in verse 6, the Lord God continues and he says, it is done. You know, the same phrase, it is done, was used in chapter 16 for the bold judgments. These terrible, devastating, comprehensive judgments. It was used on the seventh bold judgment. And here it's used for what that judgment issues in, the blessed consummation of all things. I'm the Alpha, the text says, and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And the title is synonymous with the other divine title in the book, the first and the last. It speaks of God as the comprehensive origin and end of all things, his infinity, his eternity, his fullness, and especially his absolute sovereignty over creation and history. As the Alpha, he's the creator. As the Omega, he's the consummator of all things. He's the basic, fundamental, determining reality. And you know what this tells us? It says all the stuff we've seen in this book, and it's, it's a gory spectacle, and a glorious spectacle. It's under the purview of this one. It's under the purview of this one who was and who is and who is to come. Second second thing about these throne announcements, there's two promises here. The first one is at the end of verse 6. To him who is thirsty, I will give you to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. Again, this is just another picture of the communion that we have with God in Christ through the gift of the Spirit, who is the gift of the river of the water of life. Communion with the triune God and Jesus Christ through the Spirit, that is why the church exists. And the second promise is that the one who conquers will have this heritage. What heritage? Well, the inheritance that we just saw depicted. The inheritance of this passage. And so these throne announcements are yet yet another reminder that we have to persevere. The heritage is described in a slightly new way at the end of verse 7. I will be his God, and he will be my son. It's a reference to the Davidic covenant made with the Messiah in 2 Samuel 7. That covenant was fulfilled in Christ, who is the Son of God. But here, what the Spirit is saying through John is, not only will you have communion with God as a son, you will, be, you will, you will have a royal kind of participation in Christ's kingship. Finally, the third point on the, on the throne announcements is this warning in verse 8. And the language of this warning is very sober warning injected at the end of this passage. It's almost certainly meant for the church, not for those outside. 
And so, it's a glorious vision, but the warning reminds us of something. And it does it pretty soberly. It reminds us that we're not yet in this new heavens and this new earth. We're still here as pilgrims. And so, there's a great comfort in this vision. There's a great dislodging in these visions. But also, there's this reminder that if the thing is stretched out in front of us, there's a great tension in the Christian life. And it's easily collapsed. Right? There's a, you know, this kind of vision is held out, and we're to yearn for it, and yet it keeps slipping from our grasp and from our vision, and we keep shrinking the Christian life down to something that purely has to do with this age. Because it's hard to live in that kind of tension. It's very difficult to live in the kind of tension that the New Testament calls the church to live in. And so, John, in a sense, makes you feel the tension. He shows you this glorious picture. And then there's this harsh and severe warning at the end of it, saying, look, you have to endure, you have to get there. I'm just going to pick a couple things out of this list to to, to highlight Notice it it speaks of cowardly. The very first thing on the list is cowardliness. That's the opposite of being a conqueror. We don't, uh, I think, consider this perhaps enough. The, The Christian life does require courage. It requires great courage. It requires genuine moral and emotional and, in many cases, physical courage. And dying faithfully, regardless of how one dies, requires courage. And we are often, many of us anyway, by nature, we're timid. So we have to pray for courage. It's a Christian virtue. The cowardly here have shrunk from their warfare with the beast. And the the final term I'll point out is like cowardly and faithless, which is also in the list, is the term liars. This is a very important term in the book because the book is all about being a faithful witness. Right? The people in view here are false witnesses. They've distorted the witness of Christ. So the, the, the warning is for us. Take the warning to heart. right? Because to live the Christian life faithfully under some regimes, in any case, but under, certainly under some regimes, requires great courage. And it will turn you and me into cowards and liars. Right? And these people are then destined for the second death, which is somehow conceived of outside the new heavens and the new earth. So, let me conclude. I've had the, the privilege of doing, officiating at a fair number of weddings. In fact, in a few of them, I've walked the bride down the aisle and then turned around and did the wedding. So there's multiple ways you can make mistakes on that day. But leaving, leaving to the side for the time being all of the excesses of modern wedding culture, of which they are legion, it is true that any meaningful wedding, even a simple one, done well, requires a great deal of extraordinary and careful preparation. Right? There are major productions. They require strategy, Attention to detail and numerous hours of labor. They induce enormous amounts of stress. We might say that they are great tribulations. 
And, they're, and they're, the consummation of some of these weddings can often seem to be hanging by a thread. They're great times of testing. But we endure them. Creatures that we are, we even pay for this. We, we pay for them. Because we sense, however vaguely, however obliquely, that something momentous is happening here. We do sense that. Human beings sense that. They're, because these weddings are a reminder that history is nuptial. And nuptial history is turbulent history. But these are only a pale reflection of the preparation and the price and the tribulation endured to secure and beautify this bride. First and foremost by Christ, but also in him by the bride herself. At this whole bloody, monstrous, terrifying conflict in the book of Revelation, we could say it's about the divine husband winning his bride from the false suitors of the beast in Babylon, and then going to extraordinary lengths to clothe and beautify her for this day. It's the original fairy tale from which other fairy tales are derived. At the same time, everything is also about the price the bride herself has to pay to get to this day. And so you have a situation where everything's about the bride and everything is laser-focused on this day, the day of the new heavens and the new earth and the wedding supper of the Lamb. And yet, we who go through convulsions for human weddings often have the most casual indifference to the preparation for this day. We rarely give a thought to it. I mean, we kind of know it's out there. But it has no real shaping influence. And as we see in the book of Revelation, our labor and our toil is toward this day. This is what Jesus died for. And this is what Jesus is currently working and yearning for. And there are lots of ways to get derailed on, on the way to the wedding. Right? Chesterton has this wonderful saying where he says, there are an infinity of angles at which a man can fall. And only one at which he stands. It's easy to get derailed. So, we're called again then in this text to desire, to the right kind of desire, to be at this wedding feast. And that means we're called to life-giving, turning, and renewal as faithful witnesses in Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. Right? So again, I charge you, orient yourself to this day and to this city and to this coming new creation. Now, that's not easy. That's asking to have the depths of our hearts and the fingers of our hearts pried loose from being people who identify first and foremost with this age. It's an impossible thing. It's an impossible thing. You have to wash the floor and clean the kid and go to work and do all this. And then this guy standing up here saying, well, I don't belong to this age. You have to take it up with John, the apostle. But the text is calling us to this new creation, which descends from above, which is stretched out in front of us. 
And so nothing matters but the holy city, the new Jerusalem, and being prepared and adorned for Christ, our divine husband. The one who conquers will have this heritage. Amen.